We continue our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Romans this morning. We have finally completed chapter 1, and we'll be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But surprise, surprise, I will be preaching specifically on verses 1 through 5. Before we turn to God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer to ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now prepare to receive your holy, inerrant, infallible word, give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know and be established in the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by Patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As one reads through Paul's indictment in Romans 1 of those Gentiles who are shamelessly immoral, those who are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, you can almost hear the coming protest. Hold on now, not all of us fit into that category. You can't pigeonhole all of us as utterly lost. We agree with you that there are many in our society who live in disgraceful ways, but don't include us with those people. We are good people who live by morals and standards. We deplore just as much as you do. The behavior of those who are filled with such lust and hatred and selfishness. 
and we concur with the judgment you pass on them. This reaction might resonate with us. Perhaps the presidential candidate you voted for has recently caused you to be erroneously lumped into a category that you find objectionable. Or maybe simply you recognize that most of the folks you know would not fall into the category of wildly immoral. Certainly most of the folks I talk to consider themselves to be good people. Interesting how much evil is going on in the world when everyone considers themselves to be so good. But I digress. Anyhow, despite the fact that Roman culture was known for its rampant immorality, Paul was aware that not everyone fell into that category. There were those who lived by a very strict moral code. He was well aware of the practice practice and presence of those like the Stoics, who believed in a natural created order and lived by a set of very high ethical standards. In fact, Seneca, who was one of the great teachers of Stoicism, was in Rome at the time Paul was writing this letter. Seneca was a moral philosopher par excellence who exalted the great moral virtues There's good reason why Christian theologians have been drawn to his works. There's good reason why he has been referred to as one of ourselves. There's good reason why the reformers, especially Zwingli and Calvin, were influenced by his philosophy. So perhaps we can imagine Seneca hearing Paul's indictment in Romans 1 and agreeing with it. You can almost hear him saying, Amen, brother. I concur with your judgment. They are without excuse and deserving of death. But there was something else that was known about Seneca. As great as his philosophy was, as much as he encouraged virtue and condemned vice, too often he tolerated in himself vices not so different from those which he condemned in others. Despite his ethical teachings, historical record shows that there were some very unflattering rumors about Seneca's lifestyle. It was said that despite his teachings on restraint and self-discipline, he engaged in illicit sexual affairs with married women, one of which resulted in his exile for a time. One later Roman statesman and historian Cassius Dio reported Seneca's conduct was not too infrequently seen to be diametrically opposed to the teachings of his philosophy. He wrote, for while denouncing tyranny, he was making himself the teacher of a tyrant. He was Nero's counselor. While inveighing against the associates of the powerful, he did not hold aloof from the palace itself, and though he had nothing good to say of flatterers, he himself had constantly fawned upon Messalina and the freedmen of Claudius to such an extent, in fact, as actually to send them from the island of his exile a book containing their praises, a book that he afterwards suppressed out of shame. 
Though finding fault with the rich, he himself acquired a fortune of 300 million sesters. And though he censured the extravagances of others, he had 500 tables of citrus wood with legs of ivory, all identically alike, and he served banquets on them. With Seneca in mind, we might see more clearly the shift that Paul is making here in Romans 2. There is an obvious difference in the defendant of his indictment as Paul changes from using plural pronouns in chapter 1, them and they, to a singular, singular pronoun, you. He shifts from addressing those who are doing wrong and encouraging others to do wrong to someone who has knowledge of correct ethical behavior. Perhaps Seneca or someone like him becomes representative of a new defendant in Paul's trial. And now, hopefully, the therefore that Paul begins this chapter with makes sense. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see it? Perhaps you remember the prophet Nathan's encounter with King David in 2 Samuel 2 after David's affair with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to him and tells him the story of two men in a certain city. There's a rich man with many flocks and herds and a poor man with only one little lamb, which he fed from his own table and cared for as a child. When a visitor came to the rich man, the rich man was unwilling to slaughter any of his own animals, so he took the poor man's only little lamb and he had it prepared for his guest. And what was David's response? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Pastor John told us a couple weeks ago that Paul has painted a very ugly picture of humanity in its fallen state for us in chapter 1. And many who live with a self-conscious moralism would look at this picture in chapter 1 and agree with Paul's judgment in verse 32. Those who practice such things deserve to die. But then Paul makes a shift. The defendant of his indictment is now suddenly changed as Paul says, therefore. Paul turns this very ugly painting around to reveal, as John said, it isn't actually a painting at all. It's a mirror. As the moralists stand in their self-righteousness, agreeing with what Paul says is a just punishment for those being indicted in chapter 1, yes, yes, they deserve to die. Yes, they are condemned by their actions. They are justly deserving of punishment. And Paul says to them, you are the man. It is your image reflected in that painting, for you too have sinned against God in this way, and you too are justly deserving of the punishment of death. All of your moral behavior will not save you. You still stand condemned before God. Now don't confuse what Paul is saying here. These self-righteous moralists are not being condemned for their judgment. 
I know that there are those in our culture who reject absolute truth and who love to quote passages about those who judge others being judged themselves. As though these passages assert that Christians shouldn't be able to identify the difference between sin and righteousness. But this isn't Paul's point here. Look at what he says here in the first two verses. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. As Paul lays out God's case against all humanity in these first three chapters of Roman, we have to follow the shift in the argument. We aren't moving from an indictment against shamelessly immoral Gentiles to those who pass judgment. We are moving from an indictment against shamelessly immoral Gentiles Gentiles, to those who correctly identify a moral behavior in its just punishment, who seek to live good lives, but who still live in a way that offends the holiness of God and are deserving of God's wrath. And this means that as Paul makes this shift from the shamelessly immoral Gentile to the self-conscious moralist, he is simultaneously making a shift to those who have been given God's law, who truly know what God requires of them as his covenant people, yet fail to live up to God's commands, even as they claim superiority as those whom God has chosen and given special revelation. The way in which Paul lays out the indictment against all humanity here, Jews and Gentiles alike, really is brilliant. He reveals that none are without excuse before the Lord. You see, Paul expects that the Jewish people will agree with him that the Gentiles are condemned by their idolatrous and sinful behavior. He expects that they will acknowledge that God's judgment is according to the truth on those who do what is evil. Meaning that God judges everyone according to the same standard, his holy standard. But there is a great problem which Paul reveals here. Even as they practice the same offenses as those they condemn, they have deceived themselves by believing that they will receive different treatment from God. They thought that they would escape God's judgment, as Paul says in verse 3. And this is human nature, right? Isn't it our tendency to see sinfulness in others and judge harshly, even as we are lenient on ourselves for the very same or similar sins? We assume the worst in and for others, even as we assume the best of and for ourselves. Perhaps this is how we got in this political landscape that we find ourselves in today. But it works out nicely for us, right? We can simultaneously be sinful and still view ourselves to be respectable. But this is compounded by the fact that perhaps the Jewish people had what they believed to be a reason that God would overlook their sins. Out of all the nations, God had chosen Israel as his people. They understood God to be, as as Psalm 103 states, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Paul here corrects their misunderstanding, though. God's kindness towards the Jewish people, his forbearance of their sins, his patience with them was meant to lead them to turn from their sins and return to him. God's delay in bringing his just wrath against their sins had created a space for repentance to occur. But rather than turning from their sin, they had used this space as an opportunity and excuse to sin. And Jesus had come preaching repentance, for the kingdom of God was at hand. The time had come to turn away from sin and follow God in Jesus Christ. But rather than showing God honor, they had shown contempt of God's goodness, acting as though it was God's job to forgive their sin even as they lived in rebellion. This sort of presumptuous attitude revealed that their hearts were were hard and unrepentant, as Paul says in verse 5. We can remember that the Jewish tradition locates the human will in the heart. Therefore, in places like Jeremiah 4.4, we see that an inability to obey can be identified as the result of an uncircumcised or hard heart. Paul is already pointing us forward here to what he will later say in verse 29 about the circumcision of the heart being the result of the work of the Holy Spirit alone. So because of their hardness of heart, they are not storing up treasures in heaven, but rather they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Don't miss what Paul says here. Having a presumptuous attitude before God is very dangerous. There's a well-known story of a Civil War Union Army general named John Sedgwick, affectionately referred to as Uncle John by his soldiers. While there are many interesting aspects of Sedgwick's life for which he could be known, he is perhaps most well-known for what occurred during the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse on May 9, 1864. It was here that he was directing artillery placements for his corps who were probing skirmish lines ahead of a Confederate flank. As orders were being given and his men prepared to deploy, Confederate sharpshooters who were a thousand yards away fired on their position. Sedgwick laughed at his soldiers who were ducking at the sound of bullets whistling by and ridiculed them for their cowardly behavior. Among other things, he told them, They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. A few seconds later, a soldier who had been separated from his regiment and was passing right in front of Sedgwick hit the deck when another bullet whizzed by. Again, Sedgwick commented on this fearful behavior. He tapped the soldier who was now on the ground next to him with his foot. And he said, why, my man, I am ashamed of you dodging that way. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. As the tale has been spun over the years, it is said that Sedgwick hadn't completed that final sentence. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance when another bullet came flying their way. This one striking the general in the head and killing him instantly. 
as the saying goes, famous last words. Indeed, these words are what Sedgwick has become known for. General John Sedgwick was the highest ranking Union officer killed in the Civil War. Dearly beloved, presumption can be a dangerous thing. It is one thing, though, to stand proudly and overconfidently downrange of a sharpshooter, mocking his ability to hit even a huge target. It is quite another thing to stand arrogantly before Almighty God, mocking his holiness and judgment to cast you into the depths of everlasting condemnation for your rebellion against him. It is important that we don't miss Paul's point here. While Paul originally wrote these words to the Jews who considered themselves God's people because of their lineage and their knowledge of the law, erroneously counting themselves as those on whom God would have mercy, these words very much apply in our context today. You see, I fear that we have perpetuated in America a theology that encourages people to presume upon God's grace. Counting themselves as those who are forgiven when in fact they have never truly repented of their sin and surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, Tim Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, got together a group of non-believers to discuss common objections to the Christian faith. The topics they discuss range from the reliability of Scripture to the exclusivity of Christianity among other religions to the problem of evil and suffering. These conversations were filmed and were put together as a small group study which went along with Keller's book, The Reason for God. Belief in an Age of Skepticism. In one of these conversations, which concerned how a loving God could also be wrathful, one of the participants in the conversation said this, I would like to think that I am acceptable to God if I have good intentions, if I have a will to be good, if I have a will to love, if I try hard to be a better person. I think the problem I have is if I am required to worship or required to believe in something that I have a hard time believing in. And if I am condemned to hell because I don't do that, then I have problems with that. Where did he get this idea? Where did he get this idea that all he needed to do was try hard to be good and that God would accept him? Where did he get this idea that God didn't expect his worship Only his attempt to live with an intention to love and be good. Where did he get this idea? My guess is the church. He had heard of a loving God, a God who had sent his son to die for him, that he could be forgiven of his sins. And he was painted a picture of a God who was nice and tolerant and non-judgmental, whose job it is to forgive, who loves him just as he is. Who sent his son so that sin could be overlooked. I know that these were the words of a non-believer, but my guess is that they are symptomatic of what is happening within the church. 
The American evangelical church in an effort to sell Christianity in an effort to win souls to Christ by making faith in Christ palatable to the masses has for too long told half truths about God. For too long it's encouraged people to come to Christ, to find a friend who will help. To come to Christ, to be fulfilled, to have your deepest needs met, find true happiness, live an exciting and adventurous life, have your sins forgiven. A.W. Tozer tells us that the evangelical church has created a new cross, which is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences are fundamental. The new cross, he says, does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. The idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him to the newness of life. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God then bestows life, but not an improved old life. Whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. Paul wants us to understand here that God's just judgment to all sin is death. This applies to every sin without exception. God does not overlook sin because you fancy Him to be loving. He doesn't overlook sin because you fancy yourself to be good or to live more morally than others. Paul will tell us in the chapters to come that God forgives sin not because He isn't offended by it or because He likes us or because we behave correctly, but because the just punishment of sin is poured out on his son on the cross. Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God in his body on the tree. Therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, their sin is atoned for as they are united to his death. Their old self has been crucified with Christ and they have been raised to new life in his resurrection. To this new cross, Paul says rubbish. Any theology which preaches that God is kind and loving without telling the sinner that God is also just and holy and hates our sin is a theology which is preaching a half-truth that encourages one to presume on God's grace. Any theology which preaches that one can be forgiven by believing in Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card without the repentance of sin, without the circumcision of the heart, and the radical conversion of one's nature by the power of the Holy Spirit is preaching a half-truth that encourages one to presume on God's grace. Dearly beloved, we need to examine ourselves. If there exists this sort of half-true theology within us, it needs to be rooted out for the sake of the unbelievers with whom we will serve as witnesses. 
It also needs to be rooted out for our sake. It is historical record that John Sedgwick's last words were actually not his comment about the sharpshooter being able to hit an elephant. Another general who was standing there with Sedgwick gives the accurate account. He recalls how that soldier who had ducked at Sedgwick's feet stood after being chastised by Sedgwick and saluted and said good-naturedly, General, I have dodged a shell once, and if I hadn't, it would have taken my head off. I believe in dodging. The general laughed and replied, All right, my man, go to your place. The other general then remembers for a third time the same shrill whistle Closing with a dull, heavy stroke interrupted our talk. When I was about to resume, the general's face turned slowly to me, the blood spurting from his left cheek under the eye in a steady stream. He fell in my direction. I was so close to him that my effort to support him failed, and I fell with him. Scripture offers a warning to those of us who have heard the gospel and claim Christ as our covering. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 states, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Sedgwick had been warned moments before his death not to make presumptions about the sharpshooter's accuracy, which he did not heed. Paul's word in Romans 2 not only serves the purpose of revealing the universal nature of humanity's guilt before God, it also serves as a shot across the bow. To warn all those who claim to be God's people yet continue to live in sin without repentance. Let us not make presumptions about God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Friends, if your attitude is that your sin is of no consequence then you should examine yourself to see if the Holy Spirit has truly converted your heart and applied Christ's atoning sacrifice to your life. Otherwise, let us be ever disturbed by our sins. Acknowledging that the wages of sin is death, let us fall humbly before God, repenting of our sin, pleading for God's mercy, and trusting And the Lord Jesus Christ, to wash us clean by his blood shed for us on the cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.